was March 11, 2004, in Madrid, the capital and most populated city in Spain. It was a Thursday during morning rush hour. Spaniards and other commuters filled the trains just starting their day as they traveled throughout the city. The iron heart of Madrid is the Atocha train station. It's the oldest and largest train station in the city. It's a stunning complex consisting of shops, eateries, and a huge indoor tropical garden. At 7.37 a.m., on a train that had pulled into the Atocha station. There was an explosion in one of the train carriages. Moments later, two more carriages were hit. Two bombs exploded four seconds apart. bombs ripped holes in the fourth, fifth, and sixth carriages. Also, at 7.38 a.m., about three miles away, another train just pulled off from the El Poso station. And at the same time, another train at the Santa Eugenia station had just closed its doors as all of the passengers had made their way onto the train. Then one minute later, another train coming down Tellez Street, less than a half a mile from its arrival at the Atocha station, contained four more bombs. A total of 10 bombs exploded on four commuter trains in just under three minutes. It was the deadliest terrorist attack in the history of Spain, killing 193 people and injuring nearly 2,000. Spanish police sifted through the rubble, looking for evidence. All of the devices were thought to have been hidden inside backpacks. Fingerprints on a bag containing detonating devices were found by the Spanish National Police. They shared the fingerprints with the FBI through Interpol. The FBI matched the print. It came back to an American. He was arrested. His name was Brandon Mayfield. When this thing goes to court and trial, I have one shot and one opportunity to be not guilty, or I go to prison in death row. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the reality of it. We have busted alibis. We have caught people in lies. This is we, just insane because everybody's pointing the finger at somebody else. You just don't hear every day walking in somebody's house, they're going to take the plastic out and pop somebody. So he could get the execution date pretty much any day? Yeah. There's no impediment. This is Cousins by Blood. Episode 23, The Thumbprint. This is the first episode of season three. which I intend to be the final season of Cousins by Blood. While season one aimed to present the side of the case that the jury never heard, and the experience of Ivan and his mother in the months leading up to trial, season two began my investigation, questioning the testimony of the state's star witness and introducing some reasonable doubt. The middle of season two, shortly after episode 15, Amy Betcher suffered a sudden and untimely death, in which questions still remain. 
second half of season two, intrigue continued about the ballistics, the DNA, the origin of the Arizona genes, and the possibility that Amy Betcher was wearing an engagement ring other than Amy Kitchens. But this podcast doesn't intend to be one-sided and only hear from Ivan's advocates. This podcast will not pull any punches. At the end of season two, you also heard from Amy Head and Carlos and Anthony. You heard another witness say that Ivan had been up for days around the time of the murders. You've heard Ivan had a drug problem. Ivan had a history of violence toward the women in his life. And you've heard Ivan and his mother had a volatile relationship that James and his mortgage business seemed to get in the middle of. This case is complex. This case is a puzzle that we're still missing a few pieces for. The state's case, the state's puzzle, has holes. But Ivan's puzzle is far from being a complete picture as well. So by the end of this season, by the end of this podcast, this case will be investigated as far as physically possible. And with all of the available puzzle pieces, we'll put the pieces that we can prove together to finally see the full picture and to get to the truth. Did Ivan really commit these murders? Or has an innocent man been on death row for 20 years? The final chapter begins now. All of the issues with the state's case raised this far, there's been one piece of evidence looming over Ivan's innocence claim. The key piece of evidence linking Ivan to the crime. And that is the thumbprint, Ivan's thumbprint, on the magazine of the murder weapon. If Ivan didn't commit the murders, how did his thumbprint get on the murder weapon? first time that I met with Ivan, I asked him that question. Ivan said he didn't believe that that was his thumbprint on the magazine because he never had that gun and he wasn't the one that put it under Tawny's couch cushion. He told me that he believes the police got that print match wrong. He said fingerprint matches have been wrong in the past. But he said if it really was his print, it would have had to come from one of those guns at Metal's house. You'll remember, early in the morning of November 8th, after the IHOP meeting and before Ivan's arrest, Ivan and Amy both said they went to Metal's house, Amy's speed dealer friend. Well, Ivan said Metal had guns in his garage, and Ivan did handle a few of those guns, just messing around. He said if that was his print, it would have had to come from one of those guns. But to imagine that Metal and Amy somehow manipulated Ivan to touch the magazine of a gun in Metal's garage that was actually the murder weapon, and then Amy planted that gun under Tawny's couch cushion to frame Ivan, sounded almost more far-fetched than the police misidentifying his print. So when I started this case in 2019, one of the first things I intended to do was to have the thumbprint re-examined by an independent fingerprint examiner. Because there was some talk at trial that the print was smeared or smudged. I wondered if there was a possibility that a misidentification had been made. Maybe there wasn't enough information on the print to say with 100% certainty. 
But I talked to Tammy, Ivan's wife, and she told me it had already been looked into by an independent examiner in 2012. And he confirmed it was Ivan's print. So I put the print on the back burner for over a year. There were plenty of other elements to look into. The thumbprint was bothersome, though. The Dallas PD fingerprint report just said that on July 24th of 2001, Detective J.R. Smith conducted a fingerprint comparison and identified the left thumbprint of Ivan Cantu to the latent print from the offense. I found it odd that the print was identified to Ivan's after he had been arrested for eight months and there was no documentation or trial testimony about how many points it matched. Now, I did come to find out that it's actually typical to not bring up points at trial. There is no point threshold that a print needs to reach to be a match. Tammy didn't have a report from the 2012 fingerprint examiner either. He just called her on the phone back then and told her that it was a match. So both said it was a match, but that was the end of the analysis, which I found curious. I wanted to know how many points matched, and I wanted to see for myself. So at the end of last year, 2020, I reached out to a fingerprint expert. Was there an identification made to the guy and then you're thinking maybe there was a wrongful identification in it? Is that what you're considering? Is that what you think could have happened or is it a print that's not identified to him? No, so this print was identified to him. That was Marty Ludus, a latent print expert. You'll be hearing his credentials upcoming. I'll tell you what, I'll look at it. If you want to send, if you've got any digital versions of it, it'd be yep. better. Just forward them on to me. I'll look at them and let you know what I think. And the great thing about Mr. Ludus's work is that he makes video presentations of the graphs and charts in his fingerprint examination. So it's easy for the layperson to see what he's looking at, how many points he's looking at, and why it's a match. So finally, we'd be able to see how conclusive the thumbprint match really was. I sent Mr. Ludus the materials he requested, and a few weeks later, I met him at his office. He had prepared his report into a visual presentation. I pulled into the gravel lot. I saw a tall, older man with gray hair walking a small, lassie-type dog on the property. Thanks for coming out. Yeah. This is a nice little area here, huh? Yeah, this is it, man. That's, uh, that used to be, of course, Wake Forest University, or Wake Forest College, and now it's the seminary. Oh, okay. Which means I can't get better neighbors. I mean, these young people are so nice, you yeah. know. Yeah. And uh, Dr. Powers built this house where we live in, and then he built the dry goods store there, which I've converted into the event center. Yeah. So we got a lot of history here. This is awesome. this is really in this. Well, this is the entrance to the historic district. We walked to the front of an old building and stood on the corner of the street, which literally was the main corner of this historic district. After our first phone call, Mr. Ludus wanted the rest of our communication over email. And, and when, you, when you called, I'm like, okay, yeah, sure, I'll help you. But let's not talk about anything. When I do these cases, I, it's all about the evidence. But Mr. Ludus let me know that after we talked, he had started listening to the podcast. People, there's just such negativity towards anybody. Hi, Sandy. Hey, Marty. How you doing? There's so much negativity towards anybody that questions evidence. And I, I see your. I really enjoy listening to. Was it her name? Eichenberg. What's her first name? Eichenberg. Susan. Eichenberg. Susan. She's on the dark side, you know. And I heard, I heard that. And you know, Matt, that really. People don't realize, they think it's funny to say, you know, oh, you're, you're working for the dark side. They think it's funny. They don't understand. That, that's demoralizing and it's insulting. But what is the dark side? When The dark side is when you're no longer part of the noble cause. The noble cause is putting people in prison. And um, every once in a while, things go wrong. Mistakes are made. And then as soon as as soon as the first time you disagree, 
that's when you're on the dark side, right? So when you disagree, oh man, all the people that were supporting you, they thought you were this great person and this really talented expert. Now you've you've turned on it. And I never turned and neither did Susan. Right. She's got this thing in her gut. She knows something's wrong. We walked inside the refurbished building with rocking chairs and old wood floors. He had set up a projection screen linked to a laptop in the middle of the room. He started by giving me his background. Mr. Ludus started right out of high school with the FBI's identification division. When I was a junior in high school, I applied at the FBI to be a fingerprint clerk in 1971. So. In 1972, I took employment with the FBI in Washington, D.C. It was called Hoover High. Hoover High School. Because there were so many teenage kids that right out of high school went to work for the FBI. And we had good vision. It was all naked eye. Flip through those cards lightning fast. Oh, you didn't even have a magnifying glass? No, no. You do exclusions. You'd fly through those cards. You'd pick up. 100 cards fly through them less than a second because you were looking at one characteristic. And then I was promoted to the latent print section doing nothing but mostly comparing latent prints to inked prints. Latent meaning hidden or concealed. So latent prints are prints left at a crime scene or on an object that aren't typically visible and the police can use techniques like dusting to find the print and take it into evidence was there seven years, transferred to the county, Wake County here. I was there 20 years, so um, I was sworn law enforcement, uh, retired after 30 years in 2001. And then I just started uh, gradually into this defense work. I've testified probably 400 times for the prosecution, maybe only 15 times for the defense now. Well, so you've testified in hundreds of cases. How many cases would you say you've worked? Um, The the best way I look at it is I would do uh, about 120 cases per month. I did that for 20 years with the county. So Mr. Ludus worked on about 30,000 fingerprint cases with Wake County. And that's not counting the cases he worked prior with the FBI or since as an independent expert. Mr. Ludus walked me through his report on this case. Here, he recaps the state's case against Ivan as it relates to the fingerprint match. Dallas Police Department found a pistol with a magazine at a former girlfriend of Mr. Cantu's house. And determined it was the murder weapon. A Dallas police investigator developed a latent print on the magazine in the pistol. The latent print was identified as being Mr. Cantu's left thumbprint. Evidence was presented in court that the pistol was the murder weapon and the print on the magazine originated from Mr. Cantu's left thumb. Now, in my opinion, that's the holy grail. You've got, you've got the holy grail of evidence. You've got the murder weapon. And um, it has been ballistically matched to the victims. And uh, I think also there was blood on that weapon that was matched, also traced. There's a trifecta going there and it was matched to the suspect. In most situations, that's enough. Man, you got that, how are you gonna explain that? What's important here is it's a magazine. The print wasn't on the gun, it was on the magazine, okay? And the magazine is inside the gun. From a reconstruction standpoint, you're trying to find out what happened. Well, no prints on the gun, but they forgot about the magazine, which is the perfect protector or perfect container to preserve a latent print forever. You don't see it. You only see the little bottom, the little black clip. And uh, so immediately to me is I'm thinking, wow, 
how did they process, what did they find on that gun? Was there any ridge structure at all on the gun outside? Ridge structure, meaning any fingerprint ridges, the lines of the latent fingerprint. According to the police report, the only print was found on the magazine of the gun. But then, how many bullets were in that magazine when they took it out? I think somewhere in the evidence, Matt, that it was reloaded. Mr. Ludus is correct. The police report states that the 380 that was found in Tawny's apartment was fully loaded. So it would have had to have been reloaded after the murders. Ludus is thinking that the print was left on the magazine during the reload. Ludus walks me through his comparison process. Okay, Matt, what I've got on the screen now is the images that you sent me. And at the very top is a general overall photograph of the latent print state exhibit number 86. Uh, the next one is the fingerprints of uh, Ivan Cantu. A video presentation of Ludus's fingerprint examination is available on the Cousins by Blood website and social media pages, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The video presentation is longer and goes into greater detail. As the comparison is visual, this will be an abbreviated audio version of Ludus's examination. To begin, Ludus gives an overview. This is how I examined it. This is the sequence. It's properly oriented to the same position as a fingerprint card. So that's the first thing you do when you're getting ready to compare a print. You don't read a book upside down or sideways. You get it oriented properly. The print left to right, vertically and horizontally oriented. You could actually superimpose a clock over it and you can actually use a clock and the numbers to know where you are on the print. And in the process of fingerprint identification, uh, the first thing you'll look for is continuous ridges. And continuous ridges are not really continuous. They often break and are interrupted. And that is because of the influence of pores. So uh, if you look on the left, you can see, you can see the ridge. And then I drew a dotted, a yellow dotted line connecting that ridge. And it's showing that my interpretation is that that is a solid uh, or a continuous ridge, and it really isn't. There's gaps in it. Your interpretation, you ignore those gaps because you know a ridge doesn't start and stop along the same ridge path. So the initial view is looking at continuous ridges. Then you look for when a ridge does something, a ridge event. And uh, number two is ending ridge. And that is where a ridge is following a path and it abruptly stops. And around it is the furrow, or the or would be the white space. And then the bifurcating ridge, and that is where a, a single ridge goes along, and then it forks, and one ridge becomes two. And then there are two ridges that follow along the same path. And we simply call that a bifurcation. And that's basically Fingerprints 101. You can imagine a clock and the middle of the clock is the middle of your fingerprint. Everyone has roughly 150 individual ridges. Now the majority of the ridges are continuous, so a fingerprint examiner is looking for ridge events when the ridge stops being continuous. Ending ridges or bifurcating ridges. There are other less common ridge events, but those don't come up right now, so no need to get into those. For right now, Lewis is explaining the process of noting those three type of ridges which, again, are continuous ridges, ending ridges, and bifurcations. Now I'm going to explain my interpretation process where I'm looking at the ridges. And so what I do is I can document these ridges. I can show you what I'm seeing by marking over with the red. And I do it, I can draw it by hand, hand draw it with the computer. This is the print from the murder weapon, and this is why I'm telling you it's not a smudged print. During the trial, at times, the print was referred to as smudged. However, Mr. Ludus disagrees with that assessment. This print looks fine to me. Okay. Well, it does, I mean, to me, it does look like a partial, but you're saying this isn't a partial. Um, I don't use the term partial because 
it's if it's enough, it's enough. A latent print is a latent print. I don't, you know, I don't, I just don't. That's one of the terms that I don't use because they, you could all, you could say they're all partial, and sometimes when they don't record the ink prints right, they're part, they're partial too. You know, it's just a word we don't use. Um, this print displays enough ridge structure that I know it's a central pocket loop whirl. It has an inner tracing, even though I can't see the delta on the left side. I know it's an inner tracing, which now I have eliminated more than 65% of the fingerprints. That blew by me. Maybe it blew by you too. But no, repeat that. No, okay. No, okay. This is a central pocket loop whirl. A central pocket loop whirl looks kind of like how it sounds. There's a center point with full circles encompassing smaller full circles like a dartboard of circles that go down all the way to the bullseye. I have enough here to know to, to classify the pattern. 35% of all fingerprints are whirls. Okay, so the rest are loops and arches. Loops are kind of like an oblong racetrack, and arches look like small hill patterns on top of each other. And again, the whirl are almost perfect circles. So each of the three is very distinct. And then you can further classify it, subclassify it by it being a central pocket loop world. But that's old school where we used to classify. But that's the first thing you think of when you're looking. You're thinking, wow, I know enough about this print. I know it's a central pocket loop world. I know where the delta is. I know there are a lot of fingerprint terms coming at you, but this is the last big one. The delta is the area of the fingerprint where the lines kind of come together and then diverge. They go in different directions. Again, a very distinct area of the fingerprint. And now you've pretty much got the main terms for patterns within the prints that we'll be talking about. I've got the ridge flow marked and I've got some areas here and I know I'm going to be looking for continuous ridges and then I'm going to look for ending ridges and bifurcations and, and try to find out what where is the identity in the print. Right now, it's only been classified. But what I do want you mean the identity. The, of the identity print. of the print is the different ridge events. These are these are the unique features that are in a constellation. If you think, if you you, you can refer to it as a constellation, if you mark them, and uh, they they can be very close together, they can be apart, mm -hmm. and I can mark what I think are the continuous ridges and where something happens, the ridge event. Ludus clicked for the next screen, which shows nine points on the latent print from the murder weapon. This is the identity of the print. These next few images will also be on our social media pages. So now, what I've done here, I have marked nine ridge events. I have, in red, I marked ending ridges, and in green, I marked bifurcations. Right now, in this examination, I see nine ridge events here, and I am marrying myself to them. They are what I'm going to use in my comparison. And it is absolutely essential that I stick to the plan. And so I mark this, I indicate it, and I've got this. For six months from now, I can go back to it. Let's look at this. I, I said constellation, you see? Mm -hmm. And now, do you, do, do you see that there's a, lo a specific location and there is an angle associated with each of those? Mm -hmm. So the, the fingerprint theory, the comparison theory is that there will not be any comparable or another print that has this exact combination of continuous ridges ending ridges and bifurcations in this exact location. Okay. This is, this is raw identification right here. There is a leap of faith is what the term that they use. There is a leap of faith that it would be impossible that another print have this exact combination because of the, uh, the incredible amount of continuous ridge information mm -hmm. that's there, that, that's going to be compliant, and these ridge events. This is A, 
And I didn't say, I marked, I uh, labeled each one of those ridge events A through I. I should have said that. Okay. So this is A. Ridge event A is an ending ridge. If a clock were superimposed over the print, the ridge event would be at about one o'clock. And Ludus marks it unequivocal, an unmistakable ridge event that should be easy to spot in the comparison. So now Ending. you're looking at each. I'm looking at each one, right. This is B, a bifurcating ridge. I wrote here unequivocal. This is, this is one of my perfect bifurcations. And again, a bifurcation is when one ridge splits into two and ridge event B is also unequivocal and it's just to the right of A. Letter C, this is another perfect bifurcation. This A, B, and C form a triangle constellation to the top right of center, a very clear, distinct triangle pattern. So we're on D. Now I'm going to go to um, next page. There's E, and um, I've got, this is really uh, unusual here because I've got two ridge events very close to each other. And that's what you want as an examiner. You want ridge events to be tight and close together. And it just makes it easy, them easier to see, and it's, very, it's more rare. Letter G, I'm already up to G now, is an ending ridge. This is coordinate H, and I'm seeing here a bifurcating ridge, and this is I. The last five ridge events are also to the right of center, between two and five on the clock face. Now I'm locked in. I'm ready to compare. Okay. You heard the amount of data points Ludus now has on the latent print found on the murder weapon. Now he will compare the data points to Ivan's inked left thumbprint from Ivan's fingerprint card. This is the moment of truth. All right, here's the comparison. It begins. Both of them okay. oriented properly. Latent print on the left, left thumbprint on the right. So what do you see? Both of those, Ivan's left thumbprint and the latent print, are both that, what you said, center whirl. Yeah, they're both central pocket loop whirls. Which yes. are only... What, 35%? Oh, it's even less than that with a central pocket, probably down to 28 or 30%. I'm going to bring back my uh, ridge events that I marked. The A to I markings. When you compare a known to an unknown, you just don't look at the whole print. You pick a simple area that you can see very easily and a very unique spot, and it's your home base. It's your starting point. So what I did was I selected ridges A, B, and C. And A is an ending ridge, B is a bifurcation, and C is a bifurcation. And remember I explained these as being unequivocal? Mm -hmm. Remember that triangle constellation, top right of center. This is like the most incredible starting point you could ask for. Oh, so this is a good starting point. Oh yeah, this is what you want. You got three this close together, there they are. And then you see the yellow lines. That's a dotted line. I've got the ridge counts in between. Right. From A to B is a zero ridge count. From B to C is two ridge count. And from C to A is two. And so we use spatial relationships and employ ridge counting. It's actually amazing how specific you can get with this. But it's as clear as day, the exact number of ridges that are in between each ridge event. We don't measure because there can be a curved surface. Mm -hmm. we, we use ridge counts, and that's how important continuous ridges are. But this is like the best possible um, to have A, B, and C. Yeah. You can't ask for anything better for a starting point. Right. That's my home base starting point. you have three ridge events within about three ridges. <laughs> yeah, you getting into this? Yeah, I got you. <laughs> and uh, they're, they're so close together. Yeah. And so I'm going to mark uh, the perspective ending ridge, I'm going to mark it AA because it corresponds with A. Then I'm going to look over and I'm going to see a, a, what looks like an ending ridge. And I'm going to mark that BB because it coincides with bifurcation B. And C is a bifurcation and CC is a bifurcation and it corresponds 
So Ludus is marking corresponding A, B, and C points on Ivan's known print as AA, BB, and CC. C and CC correspond to A, and I have what looks like a triangle here. So now we begin to see how the Dallas PD detective in 2000 and the independent examiner in 2012 matched the latent print to Ivan's thumbprint. Finally, I get to see for myself. In addition to the central pocket loop whirl, Ludus has found the triangle constellation on Ivan's print in the same area at about one o'clock. And if you remember the yellow shading, the only place that A, B, and C can be is in this area. And we started out with coordinate A uh, at 200 degrees, and now we've got AA. So this is the, poten this is the potential starting point, and the comparison begins. Do I identify, or is, it, is there an exclusion? but I already knew the outcome when Mr. Ludus was showing me this presentation. Although I said at the beginning, Ludus wanted to keep our communication via email prior to this presentation. A few weeks before this meeting, he had to call me and relay the news. The news was significant. I figured uh, it'd be a good time to talk to you. I just now know what's going on, okay? okay. I uh, just recently started looking into the case. This fingerprint thing, this is insane. So what it's you, crazy. What oh, it's not his print. And importantly, it's not his other thumb and it's not his other fingers. It's totally not his print. The print is of value for identification purposes. It is not his print. I have eliminated him. The term is erroneous identification. When a fingerprint is attributed to somebody and it does not belong to that person, it's considered an erroneous identification. That's the, the process. Man, this is, this is crazy. I never... I, I mean, I was I was figuring, you know, if this guy didn't do it, that shouldn't be his print. But I just never thought that. Uh, the, the crazy thing about this, Matt, is I, I I know what he was looking at. I know why he got it wrong. And now you'll hear how Ludus came to that conclusion. It starts with the ABC triangle in the top right corner of the prints. And now I've marked in red A, 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 B. B, B, and C, C, C. You see some positional compliance, but the, the triangle is slightly different. And um, there's a real problem with A. A is uh, clearly unequivocal ending ridge, and AA lines up with the ridge right next to it. So um, there's a difference there. And plus, there's a crossover. A crossover is a short ridge that runs in between two parallel ridges. Uh, right at the end of A. So there's a discrepancy there. And, and, and that's, that's real concerning. Uh, so then I go to the area where B is. BB is clearly an ending ridge, and B is uh, bifurcation. 
and it's not really in the same location. B is above A, and BB is below A. <laughs> These are all major noncompliance, inconsistencies between the two prints. So we had the triangle, but it's it's different. And then to go to now go into C, C is compliant. There, you know, it's a bifurcation. It doesn't look exactly like it. And C is in the right uh, location ridge count wise. It's two counts away, C and CC. But the problem is also you see that green arrow right below CC that indicates an ending ridge, and that does not exist in that triangle area. So I've got some, I've got some serious non-compliance here, you see? Mm -hmm. And then not to mention the blue arrow indicating that crossover. Mm -hmm. That crossover is extremely rare. That's not a bifurcation, that's a crossover. There's a crossover in Ivan's inked left thumbprint and no crossover in the latent print. And again, a crossover is a short ridge that runs in between two parallel ridges. And that's a very, very rare ridge feature. Uh, you don't see many crossover ridges like that. Now let's look at, um, again, let's look at the positional relationship. Let's do the recursive examination. You notice on the left, recursive means, recursive means I'm going to compare the inked print to the latent print. So I switched it over. There's, the, there's Mr. Cantu's left thumbprint on the left. And now we're going to look at the ridges on the right. Okay. And so what I have done here is I have marked A, B, C. There's no D anywhere in this one, but I do have A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H. I do see positional conformity limited, but not based on ridge counts. When you start counting the ridges, you look at the ridge flow. It's all uh, inconsistent. And then here's my conclusion, wrapping up all the differences that I saw. This is Mr. Ludus reading from the examination summary of his fingerprint report. With this report, I am declaring that an erroneous identification was made by the Dallas Police Department and the state presented false and extremely prejudicial evidence against Mr. Cantu during his capital murder trial in 2001. This report included a sequence of observation, interpretation, and documentation that collectively provides the basis for my opinion that the magazine print did not originate from Mr. Cantu's left thumb. I also determined his right thumb and fingers were not the source. My opinion was based on, number one, notable differences in ridge flow. Number two, discrepant ridge counts between type lines and the core of the latent print and thumbprint. And number three, nine analysis phase ridge events determined to not exist in compliant positions in both prints. Finally, in my recursive examination, I charted eight possible ridge events that could have mistakenly been determined to coexist in both prints and could have led previous fingerprint examiners to identify the latent print to Mr. Cantu's left thumbprint. Well, so, and just to be clear, are you saying that Dallas PD could not say with certainty that that's Ivan's print? Or are you saying that that is not Ivan's thumbprint on the murder weapon. It's somebody else's thumbprint. I didn't answer you, but it is not Ivan's, Mr. Cantu's thumbprint. It's somebody else's. And it has to belong to somebody else. And it can, if they pursue it, they should be able to identify it. This is by far the most substantial piece of newly discovered exculpatory evidence that I've discovered over the course of this investigation. Mr. Ludus, a man who's worked on over 30,000 fingerprint cases, has declared this 
to be an erroneous identification. And Mr. Ludus has signed an affidavit based on this report. Under penalty of perjury, he is making this claim. This report and affidavit is evidence that can be used in court. Do you think that the fingerprint expert, who I believe was J.R. Smith with Dallas PD, do you feel like he got on the stand and committed perjury by saying that he believed, or he didn't say he believed, he said that's Ivan Kantich's thumbprint. Do you think that he believed that or that he was making that up? It was not perjury. He truly believed it. How do you know? Um, Well, he had other people look at it, and I think there was a consensus. I think he was affirmed. He said that all fingerprint examinations are, are, all of them are verified before they're called. So they have a policy. So two people looked at it, and he probably also knew, maybe not at the time, I don't know when the independent examiner came in there, but it was not perjury. He was just incorrect. And it was just, you know, an error. I don't think it was anything sinister. I think he got caught up in it and properly identified that thumbprint on the Mercedes. There was also a thumbprint found on Amy Kitchen's Mercedes. And in Ludus's report, he notates that that was a correct identification to Ivan. That was Ivan's thumbprint on the Mercedes. And you'll remember Ivan and Amy Betcher both stated that Ivan drove the Mercedes after the midnight visit. So Ludus says that Dallas PD was correct on that but wrong on the thumbprint on the murder weapon. If you looked at that Mercedes print first, then gone to the one on the magazine, it's like he's thinking, oh yeah, here, I've seen this again. And there was enough there. Those A, B, and C, close enough. That's what I think, in my opinion, that's what the examiner saw. They saw those corresponding ridges and identified the print based on those. That's my final analysis on what happened. Ludus says it was the similarity of what he refers to as the ABC triangles that could explain how this error was made. Because there certainly are a lot of similarities. Yeah, but they're all in the wrong place and at at the wrong angle. But this is, uh, and and that's what I'm saying. It's like, it's major league pitching. This is a curveball. Have you ever come across an erroneous identification before? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Have you ever come across an erroneous identification before? Four times, yes. And this would be number five? Yes. And how many years of working with fingerprints? From 72 to uh, 2021. So 49 years, you've, this is only the fifth time you've ever seen anything like this. Right. Wow. It's important to note, those previous four cases happened prior to trial. A person was indicted for a crime based on a fingerprint identification. Ludus came in and declared them an erroneous identification. And the case never went to trial. So in each of the previous cases, the judge agreed with Ludus's findings. Let's play uh, devil's advocate here. You know, what would you say to people who might be thinking, well, me as a podcast producer just went out 
and found a fingerprint expert to say that Ivan's print didn't match. Because I'm sure people are going to always try to pick this apart. And they're going to say, bullshit. Right. That, you know, three or four guys have said this is his print. Right. Oh, Matt, this podcast producer found somebody that said it was. What would you say to that? I've got the documentation to prove it. Proof is the documentation, the only documentation that Dallas PD has to prove that it is Ivan's print, is a one-page fingerprint report that again simply says that the detective identified the left thumbprint of Ivan Cantu with a latent print. One page with that one sentence as documentation. No pictures, no graphs. Mr. Ludis's report is 63 pages that clearly show nine ridge events that don't match up. Evidence you can see. Unlike Dallas PD's evidence that you just have to take the detective's word for, like the second pair of Arizona jeans that Detective Wynn said were hanging in Ivan's closet. I've got this standalone report Ridge events A through I are marked. So that's my answer, is documentation. We've gone to the point because of technology and and the digital nature of everything that we do and these incredible high-def screens that are way better than looking at it through a magnifier. Luda said that's the only equipment print examiners had to work with in 2001. And another interesting thing is when I told you that Ivan's wife Tammy had actually had another independent fingerprint expert do a comparison, that's what took me so long to reach out to another fingerprint expert because it came back that that was Ivan's print on the murder weapon. One thing that he was sending me when I first talked to him about the fingerprint was misidentifications of fingerprints. He was sending me home with documents when I met with him in prison saying, this is how they can get it wrong. And one of the articles that Ivan gave me was about Brandon Mayfield's case. Well, as you heard in the show open, Brandon Mayfield was arrested for the train bombing in Madrid in 2004. He was arrested because the FBI matched his print with a 100% positive identification to one of those plastic bags connected to the bombings. But you see, like Ivan, Mayfield maintained his innocence. And after being detained for over two weeks, Mayfield was released from prison. It turned out it was not his print. Spanish authorities announced the fingerprint actually belonged to an Algerian national. Although the FBI described Mayfield's fingerprint match as 100% verified, the FBI had gotten it wrong. Brandon Mayfield is probably the most well-known case of what's called an erroneous fingerprint identification or a false positive. And it was actually that case that paved the way for Mr. Ludis's defense work. He knows other examiners can get it wrong. And Brandon Mayfield, that caused a huge sea change in how we compare prints. That's why I do this because of Brandon Mayfield. That, that's probably the biggest. Yeah. How did that get so famous and why did that get so famous? That's a... Because the same thing that can happen here. They just didn't want to live up to it. They didn't want to admit it. Keep fighting it, fighting it. And the more they fought it, the worse it got. And finally the judge says, enough, I've had enough of this. The Spanish authorities doubted Mayfield's fingerprint identification the whole way, but the FBI refused to admit they were wrong. This international identification quarrel is what made Mayfield's case the most well-known misidentification to date. And ironically... Mayfield's case also, they brought in an independent examiner in that one for his side. And he sided against Mayfield. He said that that was Mayfield's print, very much similar to... Just like this. Yeah. Exactly like this. What Mr. Cantu was trying to tell you. And I've wondered... If the fact that the examiner from 10 years ago worked in Dallas played a part in the affirmation that it was Ivan's print on the murder weapon, did this Dallas-based examiner not want to go against Dallas PD? 
like the defense examiner in Mayfield's case, not going against the FBI. Herein lies the problem. It's hard to say no to an authority who you revere or who you worked for, and, and that's why there's so much interpretation here, and it's just they wouldn't make a mistake. But fingerprint examiners do make mistakes, even though... For many decades, maybe even a century, there was a widespread public belief that it was infallible. That's Dr. Simon Cole. He's speaking about fingerprint identification, and he's written a book on the history of fingerprinting and a comprehensive paper on accounting for error rate in latent fingerprint identification. And this is who he is. My name's Simon Cole. I'm a historian and sociologist of science, and I'm a professor of criminology, law, and society at the University of California, Irvine. And this is why the general public have thought for decades that fingerprint identification was infallible, meaning incapable of being wrong. The reason they thought it was infallible was because they were told uh, it was, primarily by practitioners from the late print discipline who actually until uh, relatively recently used the term infallible to describe their own uh, practices. Do you believe fingerprint identification to be infallible? No, I do not. I mean, first of all, nothing is infallible. Um, and certainly nothing, no kind of scientific practice is infallible. Uh, and second, uh, in terms of uh, fingerprint identification, there have been known to be errors in, in the United States since at least as early as 1920. We knew all along that, that there were errors and so that those undermined that claim to infallibility. What happened for part of that time is that those, those errors that were known were kind of explained away with some kind of excuse why it shouldn't be counted and we should still call the technique infallible even though there were these errors. And I think a, a lot of people might assume that a latent print is found at a crime scene and it's put into a computer and the computer spits out whose fingerprint that is. But that's not how it works, right? Uh, That's right. That's not how it works anywhere at this time. There's no place, really, that is relying on computers to make uh, final decisions on crime scene prints. So, So what the computers are doing is it's basically suggesting prints for the human examiner to look at but that doesn't mean that the top result is always going to be exactly what you're what you're looking for. You can ask it to give you the top 20 hits, or you can ask it to give you the top 50 hits. So what the computer gives you is entirely dependent on, on what uh, the human examiner asks the computer to do. So what is the error rate in latent fingerprint identification? That we don't know. We know that there are errors, but of course... We don't. What we don't know is whether the errors, the, the few errors that we do know about that are publicly known, whether those are all the errors that actually occur, or are there hidden errors um, that nobody knows about. The best study that we have uh, found an error rate of about half a percent, so that's five in a thousand. Is there a way to speculate how many erroneous identifications that there may be out there? I mean, it's hard because all you know about are the ones that that you know about. And and then you have to kind of multiply those out into the into the criminal justice system. If we just limit it to the United States, then even that error rate of say half a percent found in that study would be thousands of erroneous identifications just because our criminal justice system is so large and uh, fingerprint identification is used relatively often. Did you get a chance to review Mr. Ludis's fingerprint report? And um, if so, what were your thoughts on it? I'm not a fingerprint examiner, um, but I was impressed by the level of detail and documentation 
that um, that he contained in his report supporting his conclusions. So how big do you think this is for Ivan's conviction? This should be insurmountable for the state of Texas to defend this. And Matt, as far as I'm concerned, this erroneous identification exculpates Mr. Cantu. The jury was told 14 times the print on the magazine was from Mr. Cantu's left thumb. And uh, all you have to do is go over Prosecutor Gail Falco's closing argument. And it, it goes like this. So the first issue that we get to is how do we know this defendant killed James Moss Cada and Amy Kitchen? Well, first of all, you have his fingerprints on the murder weapon. His fingerprints are on the magazine of the gun. Now, Matt, this, this is some of the final words. This was at the very end of the closing argument. So the jury went into deliberations with that information and the prosecutor summed up that Ivan Cantu is guilty because his thumbprint was on the magazine of the murder weapon. And I'm telling you, that is not his thumbprint. When you're talking fingerprint, and you're talking criminal trial, and when you reverse the result of a fingerprint in a trial, that invalidates the whole process. There's no way that I could imagine they can walk or talk their way around, oh, well, the fingerprint didn't matter much anyway. Are you kidding me? Have you seen cases, if there is an erroneous identification declared, does that mean case overturned, he walks out, or now we got to start all over with a new trial? Every case is different. Every situation is going to be looked at and all the other evidence that goes with it. So if you delete the fingerprint now, what else have you got? What else does the state have? They've got the evidence found in Ivan's apartment. But can they prove Ivan put it there? The district attorney has already said the DNA testing of the bands of the jeans and the socks did not definitively establish who wore them. So they don't have DNA. And the jeans aren't even Ivan's size. The only proof that Ivan put any of those items in the apartment was Amy Betcher. And it's been proven that she's lied in her statements to police and on the witness stand. If this erroneous identification stands, the only proof the DA has that Ivan ever had this gun, or any gun, is the testimony of Jeff and Amy Betcher. Ivan didn't steal the Rolex. There's no proof Ivan stole the engagement ring and James Corbett hit a toll tag at a time neither Ivan or Amy said they were in the Corvette. What hard evidence does the state really have if this goes back to trial? Mr. Cantu has already spent 20 years in solitary confinement on death row, in my opinion, based on that thumbprint erroneous identification. And at this point, You've got a podcast investigation that possibly can make a difference. There's not a precedent for a podcast investigation to turn something like this around. I think you need to stick with the theory and prove who actually murdered James and Amy by identifying that print. This comparison is not gonna be difficult. It should not take a long time. It's a perfectly good print to run on APHIS and in my report, I've included the ridge events to plot in the APHIS search. 
There needs to be an automated fingerprint search of national, state, and local databases. At the same time, every name that you came up with in your investigation needs to be compared to this print to solve the murder of Amy and James. By the end of this investigation, the goal is to reveal the actual name of the person who left that fingerprint on the magazine of the murder weapon. However, this season is just getting started. There's a lot more to dig into before this podcast is complete, starting with investigating how this gun became the murder weapon to begin with. The original owner of the gun was named Aubrey Gordon. His name never even came up at trial. And you'll remember in episode 11, Tammy told me this. Nobody ever asked who the owner was. All they said was the gun was reported not stolen. That's it. There was nothing else. Nobody ever asked any questions about that. And the guy that owned the gun lived like in between James and Ivan. So it wasn't somebody that lived in another town, miles and miles and miles away. He was right there in James's neighborhood. Yeah, I've got his name. Find it. Aubrey Gordon. I'm a private investigator working on this case from back in 2000. Why I was calling you is I wanted to find out because you were married to a Aubrey Gordon, right? Correct. Now, do you remember if he had a gun? I never saw a gun. It wouldn't surprise me um, because of the businesses that he was into, but I personally never saw a gun. Now, what businesses was he into? He had escort services. He was running escort services? Yes, absolutely. Next time on Cousins by Blood. An erroneous fingerprint identification is a monumental claim in a death penalty case. More people need to hear this information before it's too late. We need media attention. Please continue to spread the word about this case and podcast. The podcast website is now live at CousinsByBloodPodcast.com. There, you can view the video version of Mr. Lutus's fingerprint report and see images of the latent print found on the murder weapon compared to Ivan's left thumbprint. Special thanks to Andrea Amor, who worked as a Spanish consultant on the Madrid train bombing sequence. Special thanks to Marty Lutis and Simon Cole. Prosecutor Gail Falco, read by Catherine Ganaimi Leach. Mixing and Mastering by Jody Abbott. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned.